Hello and welcome to the Education Conversation podcast, brought to you by the Teaching Awards Trust. This podcast explores the first-hand experiences and teaching insights of past Pearson National Teaching Award winners and leaders in education. We're joined today by Mike Goves, teacher and teaching and learning curriculum expert, and Dr Carl Hendrick, fellow teacher and author. They're going to be discussing all about the science of learning, including some famous misconceptions and the importance of understanding the principles of learning. So over to you guys. Okay, so um, welcome and thank you for joining us. Today um, we've got a conversation ready about the science of learning and there's a few key questions to answer along the way and uh, in taking you through that I will uh, do my best to make some sense of this landscape. My name is Mike Goves with an S, I hasten to add. Uh, not the former Secretary of State for Education. Uh, I've been qualified for around 15 years. My current role is in charge of uh, teaching, learning, curriculum, assessment and induction. And I've always had a vested interest in learning, uh, cognition, memory and brain. Uh, and that's what I was I'm studying at, at University of Nottingham. Uh, and I'm also joined by Dr. Carl Hendrick, who would like to introduce himself now. Um, so I've been a teacher for about 15 years. I started working in the state sector and then um, moved to the independent sector. I did a PhD in education and I've written two books. Um, the last one is called How Learning Happens with Professor Paul Kirshner. Thanks, Carl. And yeah, I've uh, spent pretty much half my career in state and uh, independent sectors. And, and I think you'd agree that what we find is learning is, is learning. And um, what, what we're trying to do today is unpick some of the the key principles of that and perhaps some of the misconceptions that, that come along the way. And It'd be nice if we can touch upon um, how parents and, and, and students as well actually fit into this, particularly thinking about the recent situation we've had with lockdown, lots of home learning and uh, a slight increase in some areas as well in, in home learning and parents taking the role of, of teacher as well. Um, so should we kick off with framing this around how important it is for, let's say, teachers to start with, how important it is for teachers to understand the principles of learning themselves um, and, and maybe along the way we should spend a few minutes defining what, what those principles are. What are your thoughts? I think there's a, a sort of an ethical imperative for teachers or anybody working with young people to understand uh, what John Sweller calls cognitive architecture. Now, when I first started teaching sort of 15 years ago, there were uh, a, lot of, a lot of myths flying around about learning. The most famous example would be something like learning styles, the idea that you learn through preferred learning style, typically audio, visual, kinesthetic. And this has been debunked serially, particularly in the last 10 years. But it's an, a good example to give because it does two things. Firstly, it creates an almost toxic culture for teachers, where instead of planning one lesson, they're planning three lessons for different types of learners. The second thing it does is it has no impact at all where it matters which is on student achievement now there were other things flying around things like brain gym um, the idea that you can use the, the brain as a muscle and you need to keep it hydrated and stuff like that and many many more so the ethical imperative comes from the fact that it's difficult to imagine another profession that is so or has been so prone to fads and gimmicks as education in a way where the stakes are incredibly high, it would be impossible to imagine a, a dentist or a doctor saying, yeah, I, you know, there's all this evidence about whatever field they're working in, but I'm just going to do my own thing. Because yeah, or, this, happened to, this happened to work off 
you know a couple of weeks ago and i'll, I'll give it i'll give it a shot here i, I recall very clearly um my training centered around piaget vygotsky and vac and uh even essays uh were you know all we were writing were pretty much around those those three uh, you know two two prominent researchers at the time um and and posters that i had to plan my lessons around you know i had to have sections that were this is the visual section here's the auditory section but i understand actually that you know you learn best through you know movement so i also need to model and i remember very clearly having to plan this those phases in and i didn't question it actually bizarrely uh too much at the time um and like you say i think we, we've got to be careful not to undermine our own role here because if if our primary outcome obviously beyond safeguarding which is which is paramount is improve the student outcomes then we need to be implementing practices which directly have some evidence in improving outcomes surely yeah i mean let, let's kind of start off just by saying that learning is a very messy business there's a lot of noise it's very it, it, and it's very difficult to establish truths in the field in social science in general but particularly in education you have 30 people in a classroom you're a teacher there's so many different variables but what i'm interested in is particularly from the field of cognitive science there are some things that are in no way debatable anymore and there's things that you can sort of start off with and say okay let's begin with a foundation for example paul uh, kirshner my co-author he wrote a paper in which he defines learning as a, a change in long-term memory and one of the things that we know, we know this for a hundred years now is that working memory is limited. This, that if, if there was sort of a kind of a learning or education equivalent of things like water boils at 100 degrees or just facts that you can say, well, okay, under certain conditions, it's variable. But in general, this is a good starting point. It would be, I think, the limitations of working memory. And we know this is Ebbinghaus in the late 1800s. Yeah, guessing you Yeah. You know, it was really in the 1950s when they established the fact that there's probably five to eight things that you can hold, new units of information you can hold in working memory at any one given time. Now, I think if you, and again, this has been, you know, replicated many times, if you start off from there, and then you, the, the next kind of step from that is the notion that long-term memory helps uh, incredibly in the sense that if you if you have knowledge and long-term memory, you're freeing up your working memory to, to be creative, to work on problems and so on and so forth. And I think that, that's an example of something there, well, okay, from there, things get messy and there, there are no absolutes, but if you're at least starting at that point, then you're starting from a scientific basis. And that's where I think in many ways we've gone wrong in the last 30 years. I think sometimes in the, in the classroom, you feel perhaps as though, if, if you disagree here, that time might be being wasted by trying to ascertain some of these things you know so let's start a lesson with okay there, there's no plan beyond here's a blank piece of paper okay and i want you to brain dump i want you to tell me everything you can about this or this you have you know x number of minutes and actually you know that is very much now part of my planning process because it feeds off of what you're saying that feeds off of Osabel's work and research saying that probably that arguably the most important thing we could do is ascertain what the learner already knows and what I mean by that is what's already in their long-term memory store and then go from there because learning should involve making new connections. So how could I possibly hope to achieve that if I don't know what the existing connections are telling me? Absolutely, yeah. And there's also, you know, there's kind of obvious myths about learning that are low-hanging fruit and it's easy to pick them off. But there's, I think, a more pernicious myth in general within education and that seems to persist, which has its roots in romanticism, particularly Rousseau, and it's the idea that you learn better if you either discover things for yourself or if the teacher is some kind of unseen agent that, um, you know, you will remember the phrase, you know, 10 years ago, 
you should strive to be the guide on the side, not the sage on the stage. And I can even remember, I mean, the, the kind of nonsense that was floating around you know, 15 years ago, and it still is in some cases where teachers were advised, you shouldn't be talking for any longer than eight minutes in a lesson. Again, you know, it's unimaginable to think about this. Can you imagine saying to a driving instructor, you, here's a stopwatch, you're not allowed to talk to the person for any longer than eight minutes. And what I want you to do now is we're heading towards a busy roundabout. I, I want you to discover self, okay? I'm not going to tell you. I want you know, obviously there's a point in which you do do that, but not before there's knowledge and long-term memory with which to create. So I think that idea of the raw essence of what a teacher is, which is explaining things modeling things, enthusing students, demonstrating what it means to be passionate about knowledge. These things have been limited. These things have been seen as a, a bad characteristics to have. And from cognitive science, we know that ultimately we want learners to be independent. We want them to be able to, to use knowledge in innovative ways. But there's a fundamental difference between a novice and uh, an expert. And teachers are experts and students are novices. And in those early stages, Modeling things, instruction is absolutely key. And for whatever reason in our profession, that's where the kind of fundamental battle is. And I, there is this new emergence of, of, of science or what's called the science of learning. Really, it's sort of the applied science of learning. It's using it in, in different domains. And I think that um, that battle is, I think we're, you know, that there's a long way. Well, I feel like we've gone through, still going through stages, you know, there were debates around what sign of offence that, you know, was the right sign to take, you know, a traditional, are you progressive, are you for direct instruction, are you for self-discovery? And I think, you know, of all the fields I can think of, reducing something down to one or other, you know, learning cannot do that, can't do, be doing that with something as complex as this. And, and part of the reason, you know, when I was at Nottingham was to be able to take advantage of MRI scanners, you know, that, that was a key feature there. And you can't, you can't even at this stage with the, enormous um, advancement we've had in the measurements we can take and where physics has got us. We cannot track memories. We cannot track learning like this. We can't even do it at that level. So what we're trying to do is make inferences of extremely complex um, systems. And, and, you know, who knows when we'll be able to get more of a handle on it. And I think about, you know, some of the nonsense I've heard as well. You know, dopamine does this, dopamine does that, you know, you can create video games which are as addictive as, as as certain drugs. Not not really. And and actually, I think the role of where teachers come in in understanding the principles of learning is key because if we're not careful, we will, as I said, I suppose before, we'll undermine ourselves. We'll, we'll actually reduce learning rather than increase learning by by implementing uh, you know certain principles that are, that aren't, aren't actually going to be helpful. You mentioned a couple there, and, and Ericsson, I think probably as important as anyone in terms of novice versus expert, you know, I think it's important that teachers do recognise that because the, the way you would go about teaching a student who is learning something for the first time would be different to then going back to that same student after a significant number of more memories and experiences have been had and made their way into long-term memory. And actually you can undermine the learning of a, of a more expert, if you will, learner through increased scaffolding worked examples. They've, they've moved on. They're not ready for that. They, they need... You know, almost more open challenge and it can use those schema that are in place um, and I think fundamentally for, for us it's the, the key thing is what do we need to take from research but then actually as teachers we should be the ones that know how to apply it the best which perhaps stands alone from where a student or a parent might see it you know who, who even even someone who's well versed in reading the same things uh, that, that we do how do we apply this well 
Um, can, I, can I just pick out you know, a couple of points that um, we've touched upon and just have a, almost a summary on this, but the principles of learning, we're trying to say what they might be. So obviously you just recently read a book about this and, and can, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, something that helped me was understanding how we learn. So um, Weinstein and Sumeraki, and it, it, it sets out really six main sort of fundamental areas. So, so space practice, um, which we call you know, spacing something out, retrieval practice, I guess quizzing, um, but in its simplest form, uh, elaboration, um, which would take a bit more unpicking, but we're talking about you know, taking a student on a journey from how and why their understanding can be, can be deepened there and uh, interleaving, um, which, which is every bit as much to do with how we plan our curriculums is as, as delivering it. Concrete examples, um, which may well follow uh, with worked examples as well, and then dual coding. Perhaps is where the, the visual creeps in. Of those six, are there anything? Are there any there that you think uh, are particularly important, or, or or do you have a view on on others that, that might want to feature? I think all of those things are they emerge from a broader theory called cognitive load theory, which Dylan William, I think, about two years ago, three years ago, he described on social media as probably the most important thing that teachers need to know, and. Again, it comes from that model that model of working memory. Um, all those six things that you mentioned, a lot of them come from a study that was done um, about 10 years ago by John Vanlosky. And they essentially tested uh, a range of different study techniques. And what was interesting was they found that the two least effective study techniques were the things that students most did which was rereading stuff and highlighting it, which gives you the what Bjork calls the illusion of competency. You read something and you feel as if you have the, you have the sense in which oh, I know this now. So students will be familiar with kind of reading a text and thinking, well, I've studied it, I know it. And you highlight it and you have this feeling, well, I've done that, I've studied that. Uh, it doesn't usually stay in long-term memory. It's usually kind of easily forgotten. So all of those things, spacing your practice out, again, what Bjork probably calls desirable difficulties. No, yeah. th harder things in the short term for greater long-term gain but the, the cognitive load theory i think is really an important concept and again it, it, it's kind of predicated on two things one working memory is limited and therefore you need to get things into long-term memory and those six techniques you mentioned are really key the other side of cognitive load theory really sort of what it's based on again it's a brilliant point you make about models um you obviously you cannot uh you know, test the brain and see, well, this is where quadratic equations are stored and so on and so forth. But what we have is a model of a theory of learning. So that's the first part of cognitive load theory. The second part is based on David Geary's work on biologically um, primary knowledge and biologically secondary knowledge. And biologically primary knowledge is stuff that we just don't need to learn. So learning to talk, learning to walk, these are things that we pick, we, we have been through evolution, we just sort of instinctively do these things. Um, it's amazing, you'll know from watching your own kids, seeing them pick up things and you think, wow, that just, just incredibly, they just seem to instinctively know how to do that or how to say this or they pick up language. Biologically secondary knowledge is knowledge that's very difficult to acquire. This is what Geary describes as the reason why we go to school. So mathematics, science, English, learning how to read, learning how to decode, they're not natural at all. Learning how to write, these are very, we're not evolved to learn these things. And so they should be taught explicitly to people and you don't discover them. So where the conflation I think happens is people say, oh, look, you know, 
kids, they just pick up how to talk easily. They pick up how to crawl. So therefore, they should apply that in learning quadratic equations. When actually, you need explicit modeling, you need an expert to kind of show you how to do these things. Um, so I think that that as a starting point, I think it'd be, you know, if every teacher and parent and student probably had a, a good knowledge of those principles of cognitive load theory, uh, I think we'd be, we'd be in a better place. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think um, touch on a couple of points there that I'll, I'll draw out, I think. One being, can we teach learning effectively as a standalone series? I think that's worth just exploring for a couple of minutes. Is it something that we can essentially have a curriculum of? Let's learn how, how to learn. Um, and, and another one, which really for me is the domain specificity of these things, you know, transfer of knowledge. You know, I've heard so many times, well, you can either do graphs or you can't, or let's just teach graph skills today. And actually, you know, turns out that if you don't have any domain knowledge, any subject specific knowledge about what that graph's representing, really, no matter how good, how many graphs you've seen in your life, that's going to be a barrier to understanding how, how to interpret that information. And the transfer of knowledge, I think, is overrated sometimes or, or overblown. And there's an awful lot of subject specific input that we need. And that's why, for me, to just start introduce that part about learning to learn, there is only so much you can do to share and explain to someone, you know, try not to just read or highlight, try and quiz, you know, space practice out, you know, this is how your brain works, you know, you don't have a preferential left or right brain, and you, yes, you need more than 10% and, and all this stuff, but actually, when it comes down to it, in maths, in English, when I'm learning French, when I'm, when I'm you know, in my PE lessons, my drama lessons, how do I improve in that specific area at this moment in time seems to be more important and impactful than generically let's let's learn how to improve in this area what do you think yeah i, I mean that's absolutely spot on and then you, you're sort of into a different area after that and then you get into a different area of conversation which is to do with things like values about what should they learn what should be on the curriculum and so on and so forth but that's that's absolutely spot on um and again that's the thing that gets lost in the conversation a lot of the time that there's this idea that you can kind of learn general skills and apply them in different areas and um you know that's uh, very often skills in one domain don't even transfer to an adjacent one so if you take a say a good english teacher and you put them in a, a biology classroom none of those skills are useful because they, they have no knowledge about the subject that counts they're, they're, they're almost as, as useless as anybody else so a lot of the things about learning are things that are true about learning are kind of they're unsexy they're on they're on dramatic they're on they don't get they don't get highlighted because they're fairly kind of functional in nature and it boils down to things like you need to attend to something for a long period of time. And so you don't get the kind of bells and whistles and running around the classroom and all the kind of nonsense that teachers were doing 10, 15 years ago. Like, you know, a good example I can give is a friend of mine did a lesson which he refers to as the worst lesson that's probably ever been taught in the history of humanity. Well, that's quite a Which claim. was, it will sound familiar to lots of teachers. Um, in an effort to teach the circular, the circular plot of Inspector Calls, he took students out into the playground, got some hula hoops and got hula hoops in order to show them that the plot is circular. So real learning isn't kind of fun in that way, although I would argue that when you get good at stuff, it is fun. There's a sense of confidence that flows from that. Um, so okay, I agree with that. I think at the end of the day, you know what? <clears throat> you know, the most overriding message for me is if you want to learn something best, you have to think about it as much as possible. So for as many different angles as you can, and are you actually thinking hard about it? Yeah. 
what it is at its surface level, the knowledge recall aspect of it, where it fits with any prior memories you have, where it might feature in real life, where it may link with other domains as well. Are you spending that time, as you mentioned, it's a very cognitive psychological attending to that information? Because actually, the more you attend to, fundamentally, the more likely it is that you will uh, make new neural connections, you will form greater links in long-term memory because basically you're saying to your brain this is worth remembering because you're devoting a huge amount of, of, of biological resource to think about it um it it it, it, it kind of suggests to me though as a parent you know if i'm really going to be a good homeschooling parent i need to have domain expertise in every subject and I need to be applying general principles of learning to all those subjects. And, and that fills me with dread because uh, I, I, I don't think I'm able to do that. That's <laughs> for science, but I think... No, that no parent can do that. And that's, yeah. I mean, as well, I think you're getting children to do things they don't want to do. This is, this is the magic of being a teacher. You're essentially trying to sort of con kids into doing things they don't want to do. And that's where, for example other things that have nothing to do with what we're talking about such as behavior is is a fundamental requisite prerequisite for for these things to happen and the magic of teaching is about can you model and again relationships with people is so important as well if you can have a good relationship and they trust you and they go with you they'll go you know what maybe i will listen to this thing or i never saw shakespeare in that way and oh you've opened my eyes to it and, and therefore then you you know which are nothing to do with the, the kind of scientific the scientific principles we, we talked about so yeah i mean it's it's extremely complex and difficult but I, to go back to our original point i think basing the conversation initially on things that we can say well these are true about learning is i think really important yeah i, I agree i think uh, you know br brain wise which is obviously where this is happening we're biologically essentially trying to be as efficient as possible and by using the majority of our glucose and oxygen resources to think really hard every day about something that we may or may not know where that fits in our life is not generally something that anyone would frankly choose to do. So we are dragging them, you know, against their will in many cases. And, and you mentioned the point about what the curriculum is actually there for, to achieve. I completely agree. That's, that, that's another conversation. But it, it's important because actually, you know, for many students there and, and many parents, curriculum may not be their first choice and for many parents it may not be anything that they've ever seen before yeah. because not only has our understanding of learning in the brain been dramatically increased in the last 25 years compared to the last 2000 possibly more you know the curriculum clearly undergone changes in that time as well so you know I'll be forgiven to looking at the curriculum now and going well I, I don't actually know how to solve that problem I know that you know, if you tell me everything you can about it, that's probably a good place to start. If I question you on what you understand by it and I, and I ask, you know, probing how questions, why questions, then that's probably going to be a good thing to do. Um, and ultimately, I, I'm looking for evidence that, you know, my child in this in this case would be thinking hard. You know, are you thinking hard? And and, and uh, there will be a point where I can't help them anymore, even though I know the principles of learning, because actually I need to fill in that gap or someone needs to fill in that gap about how, how to make the next sequential uh, step in their understanding. But I probably could help with where it is at the moment, um, which would probably be a good idea for, for any parent to do. Um, and so misconceptions as well, I just want to quickly go back to that point. Sure. We've mentioned a, a number of them, do you, perhaps controversially, do you actually think it matters 
or which misconceptions matter that teachers should know about? So for, uh, versus not know about. For example, a misconception is clearly out there that we only use 10% of our brain. Now, I don't know if anyone actually still believes that, but let's just say they do. It's not true. But does that actually impact on student outcome? Does that actually improve their learning and understanding? And should teachers, parents, and students actually, does it matter that they hold that misconception? So, uh, recently that 40% of the British public believe in horoscopes. Now, and I actually met someone recently who's uh, um, asking me about my children and saying, oh, you know, what month were they born? And then went on to say that their personalities would be based upon the month that they were born. Um, and that's kind of, you know, most people who are into horoscopes are, it, it has no consequences. They don't base fundamental wealth. So hopefully most people don't base, you know, life and their decisions on them. But a lot of myths about learning are, are as evidence-based as horoscopes. But the consequences can be dire for students. Um, so, 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 which, so which ones matter? So, it's, so, you know, I know for a fact that, you know, my, my classes that I teach um, will probably hear from me that, uh, that you know, you, you don't have a preferential left or right brain, male brain, female brain, 10%, 20%, etc. Uh, despite things like Lucy trying to suggest the contrary. Um, but actually, you know, doesn't matter, yeah. Exactly. So th those things that don't matter. I would say um, two things really, really matter. So of, of all the things, I'd, I'd say two things really matter. One is the conflation between learning and performance. So there's a bit of an idea in schools that you can somehow, that learning is something that's visible. And, and this has massive implications for things like lesson observations, where senior, well-meaning senior leaders think, well, I can go into a lesson and I can rate this lesson out of four. I can, I can... I can see learning happening by um, what Rob Coe calls very poor proxies for learning, so engagement and so on and so forth. So that's, I think that's just a, a kind of a major thing. Second thing is motivation and learning and how, how we think that um, achievement, that you have to motivate someone and then they get achievement, was actually a lot of the evidence would suggest it's the other way around. If you can achieve something first or get students to be in a, or anybody for that matter, to achieve something, no matter how small, initially, that's usually what leads to motivation, rather than the other way around. So doing assemblies, where you you know show them a video of Michael Jordan missing a thousand hoops and then getting one, that's unlikely to motivate people, um, rather than saying, okay, listen, here's how to solve this sum. Now you do it. They do it, and you go, well done. You got it right. You're on your way. That's yeah, and, and I've certainly read that you know we've got far more chance probability of students continuing with work or even redoing work that they previously succeeded in rather than actually try something new in, in the yeah. given visual evidence of, of engagement. And I think you know I could probably finish on a practical point about uh, about that, which, which I think would be important. So I don't I don't really mind how much uh, teachers, parents, students understand about neuroscience and dopamine and serotonin. However, from a teaching point of view, there's a practical implication here because brains tend to operate on prediction, models of prediction. And uh, it wouldn't be the case, for example, that doing something fantastic in a classroom then leads to a rush of dopamine. So actually, as you mentioned the other way around, a, a rush of dopamine would be released before, just before I'm about to do something great and get my reward. And so I'm, I'm basing what I'm doing on a model of prediction. So if I want a student to remember something or to be more memorable to them, I need to put them in a position where they get their prediction model wrong. So they're expecting a particular answer or a particular series of events. And then I produce a misconception or something that they hadn't seen before. And then when they, the penny get that aha, that penny drop moment, that's when we get a movement in our 
in our brain chemistry and more likely to lead to uh, future retrieval, future memory uh, success from that next time. So, so that's something that I try and do every now and then is literally deliberately put something difficult, different, unexpected in because I'm now thinking, well, that's going to change your prediction model and you'll be more likely to remember it as a result. Um, listen, Carl, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate talking to you. Uh, fascinating uh, as always. And um, I hope this continues to spark the discussion about the science of learning and we continue to learn uh, basically uh, for the rest of our lives because I'm sure we will essentially never get there, but it's going to be interesting trying to, trying to find out. Thanks so much to Mike and Carl for that really interesting discussion. Hopefully you've all learnt something about the unseen science that teachers utilise when teaching. Or at the very least have enjoyed a good refresher on learning's key principles. If this episode has inspired you to appreciate the unseen work that goes into teaching, you can get involved in our Thank a Teacher campaign. We're gearing up for National Thank a Teacher Day on June 23rd and it's going to be a big day of celebration for the UK's amazing teachers, with free activity resources and celebrity judged competitions. Visit thankateacher.co.uk to find out more and to send a free Axel Scheffler e-card to anyone who works in a school. You can also visit teachingawards.com to find out more about the annual Pearson National Teaching Awards. Entries are now closed for the 2021 awards, but you can register your interest for 2022 and we'll be in touch when entries reopen. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the work of the Teaching Awards Trust. For Pearson National Teaching Awards on Twitter and Instagram, it's at Teaching Awards. And for Thank a Teacher, it's at UK Thank a Teacher on Twitter and at Thank a Teacher UK on Instagram. A full list of all our social media handles for LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram can be found in the show notes. So do follow us to stay up to date with our work. That's all for today. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Director of Wellbeing at the School's Advisory Service, Andy Meller, about how finding your purpose as a teacher can reduce stress and improve wellbeing. We'll catch up with you then. Goodbye.